Let's open our Bibles to um, Mark chapter 13. We are continuing in the Gospel of Mark chapter 13 where Paul read for us earlier. Um, We're going to be doing a harmonizing of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So if you want to just take a moment and mark uh, this chapter here, chapter 13, also Matthew 24 and Luke 21, it's going to be comparing verses. And with that, let's dive right into uh, chapter 13, verses 32 to 37. But of that day and hour, no one knows. Neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going into a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning. Lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. So I've entitled this message this morning, Watch. And it is going to deal with um, current events that are um, uh, unfolding even as we speak. Uh, The Lord likened his coming to a woman uh, who is going to have a baby, like birth pains. And the the closer the baby comes, um, the contractions become more and more. And the intensity of the contractions become more and more. And that's what he likened um, what it would be like at his uh, second coming. This morning, we will look at the harmonizing of the Olivet Discord in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, only to find that they don't harmonize, and then we'll look at the reasons why. Now, Mark chapter 13, verse 37, is really uh, the major admonishment that Mark is giving to us, to be found watching. But really, that begs the question, what are we to watch for. And for this, and again, this is one of the reasons it's so important to teach all the Bible, because most of the information that we're going to get this morning of what to watch for isn't in the New Testament, but they're prophecies from the Old Testament. And we are to keep an eye on them as we watch, you know, it's the old saying, things aren't falling apart, things are falling together, and they're falling together quickly Um, at least as far as Bible prophecy is concerned. So I would beg the question, watch for what? This morning we will look at events unfolding in the Middle East uh, when Israel has been brought back to her homeland as foretold by Jesus in the parable of the fig tree. Um, That would be in this chapter here, uh, Mark chapter 13, and if you look at uh, verse 28, let's just read it and we'll uh, comment uh, that uh, Matthew also has this. Now learn the parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it's near at the very door. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. doesn't say some things, but all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will by no means pass away. This generation, well, there's an implication here. And the implication is that when the nation of Israel is back in the land, It's always an idiom or a type in the Old Testament when it mentions the fig tree. Um, In the 70s, Pastor Chuck put out a whole film. It's called The Parable of the Fig Tree. And it showed Israel in its infancy 
when it was all swamps and mosquitoes and nothing there, to what it is today. And we'll be going back to Ezekiel, which talks about this transition from nothing to what it is today, one of the strongest and uh, most viable economic places in the entire world. So we find here, um, this generation implies that when Israel's back in the land, all the preceding warnings in Matthew 24, Luke 21, and Mark 13 would be fulfilled. It says the fulfillment of all Bible prophecies. So now we're going, we're backing up, and we'll talk about this in a little bit more detail. From the time that it comes back, now it's interesting to me, that just happens to be uh, the 70th year of Israel being back in the land. They, They became a nation in 48. Well, it's 2018, that's 70 years ago. Now we could argue all day what some people think a generation is. Some say it's 40 years. Some say three score and 10. That's how many years you got. That means I got about two years, a couple days. <laughs> uh, you can make the case that it is 100 years because in the Old Testament it says that the children of Israel were four generations in the land of Egypt. And we know they were there for 400 years. So I'm not going to... Uh, Uh, debate or be dogmatic about what is a generation. I think it simply means if you happen to be alive when you see the regathering of the nation, you could be uh, born tomorrow and um, be a part of that, or you could have been born 70 years ago and be a part of that. I was, let's see, four, eight, four, nine, I was about three years old when Israel... um, um, uh, became, no, I wasn't. I wasn't born for three years. It was three years before me. It's really my head cold. I got all kinds of excuses. I'm getting old. You know, I'm tra- a little bit of jet lag. I got all kinds of excuses this morning. But before we look at these Gospels, we discover Matthew and Mark are going to be very, very similar. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 24. And um, begin to dissect what Dave Hunt calls the symphony of Matthew chapter 24. He goes out of his way uh, to point out that this is not necessarily in a chronological order. He calls it a symphony. And it's a combination of all these events, but not necessarily in a chronological order. In verses 1 and 2, we read, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. All right, this tells us where it takes place. They're in Jerusalem. They're looking at the temple, which means they're inside the walls of the city. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these? Assuredly, I say to you, Not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, this was unthinkable. Remember, in the back of their minds, he's the Messiah, he's in Jerusalem, the kingdom has come. They just got done heralding him as Messiah um, um, just before that. And so... I imagine that the disciples are shocked by what Jesus just told them, that this temple isn't going to be here. Well, that really threw a wrench into their thinking. And as a result, um, if you turn to Mark now, chapter, just keep your finger here because we're going to be doing one of those flipping back and forth things. Go to Mark's account of this in... um, one and two. It says in verse Mark 13, then he went out of the temple. One of his disciples said to him, teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. 
Now go back to uh, Matthew's account, but keep your finger here because we're coming right back. Now in verse 3, we find the disciples are no longer in the Temple Mount. It says, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives. That means we changed locations. We're no longer in the Temple Mount. We're on the Mount of Olives. They would have gone out the east gate. They would have gone down the Kidron Valley. And then they would have began to go up the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. What Jesus said in verses one and two prompted, they had to ask this question. This was not their, their thinking. So now, here it's plural. The disciples, not in the temple, but on the Mount of Olives, they want to know, what in the world were you talking about? Not one stone will be left here. When is your coming? What's the sign that we should look for? Some people in verse three see two questions being asked. Some people say three. And again, I wouldn't uh, split hairs over that debate because I don't think it's worth splitting hairs over. The fact is, they asked the question. The difference between Matthew's account and Mark's account is in Matthew's account, it says disciples, plural. But if you go to uh, Mark 13, it actually tells us that there were only four. And so we read in verse three, verse one and two is in the temple. Verse four, now as they sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. It wasn't all of them. It was what I call the inner circle. There was an inner circle primarily made up of Peter, James, and John. Then there were the 12. Then there were the 70 that were sent out. And then we have the disciples in general, meaning many. But um, verse four, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things would be fulfilled. If you go back to Matthew's account now, they add something to it. And not only says sign singular, and this is important. What will be the sign of your coming? But Matthew adds, and the end of the age. They thought the kingdom was here. But now the Lord is saying, no, the temple's gonna be destroyed. And it implies that if it's not now, then when? And so they have questions. And the questions is, We're looking for what is the sign and of your coming and of now plural, the end of the ages, other things that are there, the signs of your coming. That's why some people see two questions here. Some people uh, see three. Now, Matthew, in Matthew's account of the Olivet Discourse, um, he gives us more information than Mark. Remember the reoccurring phrase from Mark? over and over again. What is it? Tell me. Immediately, 54 times, over and over again. Immediately, immediately. He gets to the point. He tells you what's happening. Matthew is writing to the Jews. And we have 51 verses in the Olivet Discourse for Matthew, but we only have 37 verses in Mark's account. Now, when it comes to Luke, as he writes to the Gentiles, Matthew wrote to the Jews, but Luke uh, is writing to the Gentiles. Luke doesn't even address the abomination of desolation that we find in Matthew and Mark. Both are in Matthew and Mark, the abomination of of, uh, desolation. Uh, There are similarities in the wording in Luke, but when you read it carefully, You know, you're always discovering new things as you continue to read through the Bible over and over and over again. Good place for an amen. (laughs) And um, I've been teaching this for many years. And I have to admit that um, uh, the distinction between Matthew and Mark's account and Luke's account are very, very different. But where it can throw you off is the wording is almost identical 
in some cases. It must be read extremely carefully. They are similar, but when read carefully, they are looking at two different events. So with that, let's turn to the Gospel of Luke and introduce Luke's account in chapter 21. And we find that the things that are similar, 5 and 6, then he spoke of the temple, how it was adored with beautiful stones and donations. He said, all of these things which you see, the day will come in which not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And they asked him, saying, Teacher, when will these things be, and what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? So here is an abbreviated uh, uh, verse of what Matthew gives us much more insight into. Um, it's the same as uh, Matthew and Mark. Uh, Luke's account seems to agree with Matthew and Mark. Um, However, when we look at verse uh, 20 to 24, we can, uh, it's it's the same um, up to verse 19. But when you get to verse 20, we're going to read verse 20 through 24. But when you see Jerusalem, surrounded by armies, and know that desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her uh, depart. And let those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land. And that's an important word there, land singular. And wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword. They'll be led away captive into all nations. We call this the the dysphoria. And Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, what Luke is talking about here, he's talking to Gentiles. And he's, what he has in view is the destruction of the city of Jerusalem that takes place in 70 AD. And he says Jerusalem is going to be scattered for this period of time until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now there's a big debate going on between the times of the Gentiles and the fullness of the Gentiles. Again, I think you can split hairs over this and get sidetracked and miss the forest for the trees. Basically, it's saying that, um, let's just, um, for sake of not arguing about it, say it's from the time um, that the Roman legions came in. 1,100,000 people were killed when the Romans took Jerusalem in 70 AD. Luke's account here, as he writes to the Gentiles, is speaking about a period of time that deals just with the destruction of Jerusalem. And he is giving them information on when you see Jerusalem surrounded. That's in verse 20. And then in verse 24, They'll be led away captive. Well, that's what happened in 70 AD. Again, we call it the dysphoria. And we find them in Russia and Poland and Europe and and all over the world. And they've been there until they were regathered again a second time. This is the difference between Matthew and Mark, Matthew writing to Jews, who's more concerned in telling them what to do as he gets into describing the abomination of desolation, where Luke doesn't even touch it. He doesn't even mention it because he's writing to Gentiles. Matthew is writing to Jews, and so he gives detailed information about what they're supposed to do. Where it gets tricky is the verbiage. It's almost identical. Luke uses the same verbiage for the destruction of Jerusalem as Matthew and Mark use for what to do when you see the abomination of desolation. Now, I can't take for granted that everybody understood what I just said. 
So, did everybody understand what I just said? <laughs> There's two major events here going on. Um, one is a fact of history that happened in 78 AD. In Luke 19, Jesus prophesied about this event. But Jesus said, well, let's go back to Matthew 24. Jesus said in Matthew 24, differing from um, Luke's account, we'll pick it up in verse 15. Luke doesn't go here. In Matthew 24, verse 15, therefore when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whosoever reads, let him understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the house stop not come down to take anything out of the house. Let him who is in the field not go back to his clothes. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babes in those days. Pray that your flight may not be on the Sabbath. See, this is Jewish stuff. Luke, Luke doesn't even mention that because he's talking to Gentiles. Gentiles don't care how far you travel today or yesterday. Jews do. For then there will be great tribulation. A preterist is one who believes that all of Matthew 24 and, and, and what we see here all was fulfilled when the Romans destroyed the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It's easy to disarm that argument because of the next verse. For then there will be great tribulation. When? After you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. It's future. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago about a shadow of that event uh, with the man Antioch Epiphanes. And for those of you who were here, we talked about the Maccabean revolt and how they defiled the temple. And uh, they wanted to know how long before it would be cleansed. Um, I was speaking in Calvary Chapel, Buckeye, and it was on the eighth day of Hanukkah. So I got to explain to them where Hanukkah came from. And I said, as I speak to you this morning, they're lighting the eighth candle on Hanukkah. In John's Gospel, it's referred to as the Celebration Festival of Lights. It wasn't part of the Old Testament feasts laid out by Moses. It only came into being about 164 BC when Judas Maccabeus and his family regained control of the city and Jerusalem, cleansed the temple. They only had enough oil for one day. It had to be sealed. It had to be anointed by the high priest so they could only find one of them. Only good for one day, but it lasted for nine. Um, I'm sidetracked already, so I might as well keep going, right? A menorah has seven branches, right? But a Hanukkah candle has nine. And when the sanctuary was cleansed and purified, Antioch Epiphanes took um, a statue of Jupiter and put it into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant should have been. And thus it was defiled. So that was another study. But here... Uh, Those who say that these things all happened in 70 AD, well, then you're telling me that the the greatest time of trial and tribulation in the world has ever known took place in 70 AD. That's that's crazy. I mean, it's just not um, common sense thinking to say, yeah, the worst time in history was 70 AD. Well, we've had the Holocaust and two world wars since then, and many, many a war since then. And then it's so bad, he says in verse, it says like the world has never known nor ever shall be, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. In other words, the Lord says, unless he directly intervenes in world history, the world will wipe itself out. This is a clear distinction between Luke's account and Matthew's account. Luke's account is dealing with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Matthew's account, writing to Jews, is telling them what to do when they see the abomination of desolation. Now, where does it get complicated? Well, the verbiage is almost identical. 
and saying what to do. Pray that your flight isn't on the Sabbath. Pray that you're not pregnant. And so people, without reading it carefully, simply lump it all together. But that is not the case. We have two different things going on and taking place here. It's clear in both Matthew and Mark's account of this. By the way, Matthew and Mark are identical in what they say, except Mark is the one that says it was only four disciples, um, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. Uh, Matthew leaves that out. So not much more clarification in Mark's gospel. Uh, Now, all three, switching gears just a little bit, all three gospels deal with the second coming and the parable of the fig tree. We just read the parable of the fig tree from Mark's account. If you're taking notes this morning, it's also in Matthew 24, verses 29 to 35. It's also in Luke 21, verses 25 through 37. Let's go back to the disciples' um, question, um, back to Matthew 24, verse 3. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they're looking for a sign that's going to tie in with the Lord's second coming. Now, in this parable, I'm going to have you turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. So let's make our way back there. Ezekiel 36 beginning with 35, 36, and 37, and 38, and 39. Uh, Ezekiel has 48 chapters. From this point on, I can tell you it is in a chronological order. So in chapter 36 of Ezekiel, let me draw your attention to verse 35. Oh, let's go back to Verse 34, it says, The desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. This is a prophecy about the regathering of the nation of Israel. So they will say the land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. The land became desolate after 70 A.D., There was no one there to till it, to take care of it. And as a result, it became swampland. The Romans would tax people by the amount of trees on there, so the forestry was pretty much eliminated. Um, But then, the nations which are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate, I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I'm going to do it. Now, I could really get sidetracked here with the history of the church and why they have a really poor understanding of Bible prophecy, um, especially in the area of um, eschatology, which is the study of last day things. They were primarily a millennium, meaning they didn't believe in a literal millennium. This, is, this went all the way from the 400s through the Reformation. And, you know, Martin Luther did a lot of things right, understanding that salvation is by faith alone, apart from works. There's a good place for an amen. All right, so he got that part right. He didn't carry it far enough because in Lutheranism, Protestantism, and I'll pick on the denomination that I grew up in, um, we do not take a literal view past tense for me, (laughs) of the book of Revelation. Neither did we understand what the rapture was, nor infant baptism. Infant baptism was tied into salvation, which it shouldn't be. And so there were mistakes made that were so ingrained for hundreds of years that when it got to these verses here that when it talked about the book of Revelation, which is primarily about Israel, they go, what? There's no Israel, so it has to be allegorical or symbolic. 
and they were simply wrong. Because the Bible clearly says he's going to bring them back. Not only here, but if you're taking notes, Isaiah 11, verse 11, I'll bring them back the second time. First time was when? Babylonian captivity for 70 years. Did he bring them back? You betcha. Were they dispersed again in 70 AD? Absolutely. Did he bring them back? Yeah, but not for almost 2,000 years. Can you see, if there is no Israel, the problem that theologians have in trying to figure this stuff out? And as a result, they came up with doctrine that was not uh, what we call good exegesis, not a good examination of the entire scripture. If you're reading Ezekiel 35 and 36 and 37, it clearly says, where did I leave off? In verse, um, um, let, first let's go to verse 24, where it says, for I will take you from among the nations, plural, and gather you, see, the reason this is important, gang, it makes the distinction between the Babylonian captivity, which was not nations, it's one nation, the Babylonian nations. Verse 24, I will take you out from among the nations, plural. This is a worldwide regathering. Gather you out of all countries and bring you back into the land. This can only be a reference to what happened to bring the people back to Israel in the parable of, of the fig tree, where they're back in the land, where the land is now tilled. And um, in verse 37, thus says the Lord God, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. I will increase their men like, like flocks, and like a flock offered as a holy sacrifice, like the flock at Jerusalem on its feast days, so shall the ruined cities be filled with flocks of men, and then they shall know that I am the Lord. The reoccurring phrase in Ezekiel is then they will know that I am the Lord. Now let's go back to Matthew chapter 24. Did quite a bit of research because I had a little bit of extra time on this next verse, Matthew 24, verse 36. Because what we just finished with 32, 33, and 34, that is in all three of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call the parable of the fig tree. It is simply that when God brings Israel back into the land, all Bible prophecy will be fulfilled. Now, that's quite a statement. Now, in verse 36, we have a Greek word, but, and a Greek phrase of that day. I was listening to Dave Hunt's defense before the pre-trib group that has been meeting for 29 years in Dallas, Texas, when they saw the need to uh, make a stand as um, post, the argument was that there was no such thing as a rapture until the 1800s, which is sheer folly if you've read anything about the Bible because Paul talks extensively about it as an imminent event that could happen at any time. This goes back to the first century, not the 1800s. But um, what's interesting about this is Dave Hunt says that the rapture is in Matthew chapter 24, and here is the defenders of the pre-trib rapture, and they're saying that the Olivet Discourse does not contain the rapture. Well, Dave Hunt gave up and gave his study and reasoning and why it is. And let's just put it this way. When all was said and done and when they had the Q&A, Chuck Missler got up. He took a hanky out of his back pocket and waved it back and forth. (laughs) In other words, we give up. We can't refute what you just said. And um, I really encourage you. I think we still have some copies. Or you could go online and download it from the pre-trib conference that takes it just it happened while we were in Arizona uh, from the third through the fifth they were um, um, having it again this year they've been doing it for 29 29 years all right having said that the word but in the Greek is and this is the phrase but of that day one of the questions during the Q&A time that uh, Dave uh, Hunt had to Answer, he got support by a Greek theologian. 
And he said, Dave, you know the phrase there, but of that day, there's 10 times in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that it always means, without exception, a complete change of thought. All right, we're done discussing this, and now we're going to go on to this. And the danger is if you don't see that, you have a tendency to put it in a chronological order. And much of the debate was as you have to keep it in context. And, and David says, well, where, did you, where does it say that here in Matthew 24? Well, it was a part of something that was so embedded in them that when Dave brought out his simple logic on it, they simply couldn't refute, refute it. So what I'm about to tell you from verses 36 to 44 is that we believe these are rapture verses. And he gives a simple logic of why he believes this is the case. I've been believing it my whole Christian life because I was brought up under Pastor Chuck and that's um, what Calvary chapels have always held to and what uh, what we believe. So the phrase here is the Greek word, um, if it's day, it's, it's, it's spelled uh, D-A uh, hyphen D-A-Y, it's pronounced Dave. Um, and as a result, it implies here a new thought, okay? Something different from what we just discussed with the parable of the fig tree. But of that, and we'll read it here. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Two will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, be also ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect him. Now many, even defenders, of the pre-trib rapture, say that um, the rapture is not mentioned in the Olivet Discourse, and the ones that are being taken out is not the church, but the wicked, and they're being taken to judgment. Um, if that's the case, then Jesus is clearly contradicting himself in Matthew 24. Because before this, he's telling right after um, the time of great tribulation, go back to Matthew 24, verse 21, the world is going to go through a time of great tribulation. And then it says in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, you're going to see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. When is Jesus coming? at the end of the tribulation. Matter of fact, it says if he doesn't show up, no flesh would be saved. So he's making a statement there but, uh, so that you can know when that is. But in verse 36, here's an event that no one knows. Now here's the best argument for the pre-trib rapture. It's called imminency. It means that the rapture could happen before Christmas. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> it's an imminent event that Paul believed. He talks about it in Hebrews, looking for his appearing the second time. Uh, John chapter 14, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, uh, you, may be with, you may be with me also. But also here in Matthew 24, I know when it says no man knows the day or the hour, this is implying imminency. And in my research on this this week, I found it interesting, people coming up with reasons why. The one I liked the best was that if it's imminent and only the father knows, this is something he wants to keep out of the hands of the enemy for whatever reasons. I thought about that, and I thought that's 
Pretty good thinking. In other words, um, like it says in Romans 11, that uh, blindness has happened in part to Israel. Right now they're blinded. They don't know that Jesus is their Messiah until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And when that happens, then we are out of here. It implies a set number of people. So I usually like to stop about this time and say, if you're not saved, will you please get saved and give me my Christmas present so I can go home to be with the Lord and just do it and get it over with and stop fighting and struggling with him. He loves you. He gave everything for you. You want a gift for Christmas? The greatest gift ever given. It's the gift of God, eternal life. And there's nothing better than that. And that's another good place for an amen. So, as we look here, I can tell you the day that Jesus is coming the second time. I can eliminate verse 36 that it's not the second coming right there. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12, the book of Daniel and the reason for the spiritual warfare in the heavenly realm to um, stop the message from getting to Daniel is because it told the very day that Jesus would come the first time. That's the most valuable, some of the most valuable information you'll ever hear. But in Daniel 12, it tells us the very day he's gonna come the second time. You will have to have missed the rapture. You'll have to be living in the great tribulation. And we just read it in Matthew 24, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet. Huh, did you know that Daniel was a prophet? Yeah, verified by who? Jesus himself. So now we have a prophet. It says God will do nothing without revealing it first to his prophets. So now the very last verses, I find last verses of books like Malachi and Daniel extremely interesting. The last couple verses of the book of Malachi, the last couple verses of the Old Testament, tells us about the great tribulation. He's gonna send us Elisha before the great and terrible day of the Lord. That's how the Old Testament ends. The last couple verses of Daniel chapter 12, picking up in verse 11, is in the middle of the tribulation period, from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away. Well, that's Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Um, When the Antichrist goes into the temple, 2 Thessalonians 2 shows himself that he is God. And the abomination is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. So I know to the day that the Lord is going to come 1,290 days after the abomination of desolation is set up. It's not going to be a surprise. Turn to Psalm 2. Now there's a lot of Psalms, but it's interesting to me that the second psalm deals directly with what we just read. Psalm 2, the Antichrist knows when Jesus is coming. It comes right out and says so in in Psalm 2. Let's read it. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Are angels anointed? No, but who is? The church. We're gonna rule and reign with him and we return with him according to 1 Thessalonians 4. And then it says, this is what uh, those that are coming against the Lord when he comes to fight. They say, let us break their cords in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So the armies of the world are coming to fight against the Lord. They know when he's coming. They gather together to fight against him. Now, verse four is the Lord in heaven. He who sits in heaven will laugh. I mean, how crazy is that? I'm going to fight, and a worldly army is going to fight against a creator of the universe. He spoke them into existence. He spoke everything into existence. And um, uh, the Lord will hold them in derision. 
and he will speak to them in his wrath. What is the great tribulation called? The wrath of the Lamb. That's its title. Time of Jacob's trouble, not the church's trouble. And distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And now he talks about what happens after this battle. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. When? After you break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like potter's vessels. And then gives a little advice to the kings of the earth during this time. Don't be a fool. Be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Because when his wrath is kindled but a little, but blessed are those who put their trust in him. Okay, let's uh, make our way back to Matthew chapter 24 and address the argument that says it's the wicked um, that are taken out <clears throat> to judgment instead of the righteous. Um, I'll have you turn to two places. My first question is, if the wicked are taken out, what judgment are they taken to? Now think about it. This is, um, if this is uh, as it was in the days of Noah, and boy, if we were ever living in the days of Noah when the thoughts of man are only evil continually, we were certainly marching down that road. Lawlessness all over the place. I mean, all hell is breaking out in Paris right now. And please don't, be, don't let that be the only thing you remember from the Bible study this morning that I said hell from the pulpit. <laughs> okay? Try to remember the rest of the Bible study. Turn to Second Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, this is Noah, but saved Noah, one of the eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. So it starts out, nobody knows the day of the hour, but it's going to be like the days of Noah. Well, what happened with Noah? Uh, he was righteous, and uh, he was the one that was saved. He was taken up along with his family. And then it goes on to say, in turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them to destruction, making them an example to those who are afterwards would live ungodly. And he delivered Lot, who was oppressed with the filthy conduct of the wicked for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Notice verse nine. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. If we're as close to the coming of the Lord as we believe we are, I believe it will usher in the time of God's judgment. And if we understand Matthew 24 correctly. It's one of the greatest arguments that we have for a pre-trib rapture. Uh, Noah wasn't taken to judgment. The people were taken to judgment. And when Lot got the word that Sodom and Gomorrah was gonna be destroyed, they laughed, his own family laughed at him. And the angels actually had to come and take him by the hand and drag him out of the house because the angel said, we can't do a thing until you're out of here. And the Lord knows how to deliver the righteous out of this ungodly world. He's going to judge the world. But as I read the Bible, what makes sense to me, common sense, is that at the days of Noah, those that were taken were those that were righteous, both in Noah's case and also in Lot's case. Um, this doesn't fit with the second uh, coming um, the other problem that we, let's go back to Matthew 24. <clears throat> the other thing that doesn't fit here is that when we read the Olivet Discourse, we're reading that 
everyday life was normal. Let me compare it to the church of Laodicea, the last day church. What was the attitude of the last day church? They thought they were rich. They thought everything was fine. And the Lord says, you guys don't realize you're poor, blind, and wretched. Their, their perception of themselves and the Lord's perception were two different things. I believe, um, especially the American church, I'm not saying all churches, but the American church is living more like Laodicea. And what we read here is the normality of life that existed before the flood actually came. They were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, and that day until Noah entered the ark, and they didn't know. Why didn't they know? Because they were just going grocery shopping, buying Christmas presents, waiting for the Packer game to come on. You know, Life is normal. Is life going to be normal right before Jesus comes again the second time? Anything but. He says it's the worst it's ever been. As a matter of fact, unless I shorten the days, nobody's going to be saved. You couldn't have two opposite conditions of the world. One's going to catch people totally off surprise. If the rapture of the church is not in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus clearly contradicts himself in Matthew chapter 24. Read verse 44. Therefore, be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you don't expect him. That, to me, um, is him saying one thing about the rapture of the church, because you don't know when it's going to happen, but look for the signs. What did Mark say? Simply watch. On the other hand, he said that concerning the second coming, that it's going to be so terrible that um, unless he shows up, all flesh would be destroyed. My friends, you can't have a greater contrast than this. It simply doesn't fit. And so we have two very different things going on. Ooh, I better get going or I'm in trouble. Let's go back to Mark chapter 13. Back to our text. And let's get cut to the quick because I want to tie in the events that I think we're supposed to watch for. Mark 13. But of that day and hour no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor my Father only. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know the time when, he, when it is. It is like a man going into a far country who has left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster or in the morning lest coming suddenly he finds you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. I'm going to begin to close this morning. Notice I use the word begin. With three things that I see as right in front of us that are unfolding as birth pains um, as we speak. So let's turn to the book of Ezekiel again, but this time chapter 38. Ezekiel 38. We read in 36 and 37 that Israel is now back in the land. But it's back in the land. In chapter 37, we have um, the Valley of Dry Bones. And it's a picture of the nation of Israel being dead without the spirit being in them. And um, the Lord said to Ezekiel, prophesy to these bones and tell them to come back to life. And then the bones started to come together. Muscle and sinew came on their body and they stood up. And the Lord said to them, is this not the whole um, Verse 12 of 37, prophesy and say to them, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you out of your graves. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will place you in your own land and then you will know that I am the Lord. Check it off. It's a fact of history. 
Israel's back in the land and they are prospering. Um, tourism is up 30% from last year, which was up 20% from the year before. Every year, exponential growth as far as that goes. Now, in chapter 38, this has not yet happened. But what I see happening in the world today is what I want to leave you with thinking about this morning. Mark said, watch. Watch for what? Things that the Old Testament said is going to happen during this period of time. We need the old to get a complete grasp of what's unfolding. So Ezekiel said after 37, Israel's back in the land. But now in verse 38, we have a war beginning to unfold. If we read, um, um, oh, verses, just let's read one through eight and I'll come back and comment on them. Now, the, this is, by the way, has not happened yet. Now, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog in the land of Magog. Gog is a title, I believe a person. The land of Magog, straight north of Israel, is Russia. We could prove it a lot of different ways from the Prince of Rosh. Meshach and Tubal and prophesy against them and say, thus says the Lord God, because I'm against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around. I'm going to put a hook into your jaw and lead you out with all your armies and horses and horsemen, all splendid, clothed in great company with bucklers and shields and on them handling swords. Okay, he's, they're leading the charge. But with them, in verse 6, is Persia, Ethiopia, Libya, sometimes called Put and Cush in the Old Testament, all of them with shields and helmets, Gomer and all its troops. The house of Togarma is in our sight this morning. And from the far north and all its troops, many people are with you. Prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered together. Notice this, after many days, You will be visited in the latter years. You will come into the land that were brought back from the sword and gathered from many peoples on the mountains of Israel, which has long been desolate. How long? Said 70 AD. Uh, They were brought out of the nation, and now they dwell safely. You will ascend, coming like a storm, coming over the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and many people with you. All right, the first one we want to look at here is Russia. The Russian bear has returned to the Middle East to threaten Israel. 45 years, I remember this, 45 years after Russia was ousted in the 1973 Yom Kippur War. I was driving a cab on October 6, 1973, and this came on the radio. And I was reading Bible prophecy. I'm thinking, here it is. Israel has had uh, many wars, but the main ones was the main one in 1948 when they declared themselves a nation, the Six-Day War in 1967, and this one here in 1973. Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, caught Israel completely off guard because everybody was in synagogue. Everybody, they, they weren't prepared for this to happen. But against all odds, Israel won. That was 45 years ago. And I, I can still remember it. Now 45 years later. Now they're back. Why are they back? The Russians have established a large military base at Tarsus. Tarsus is in Turkey. I'll be coming to Turkey in a minute. On the Mediterranean Sea close to Israel's natural gas installation. And I just got to pause here and just comment, and I'll talk more about it in just a second. One of the largest natural gas discoveries in the world called the Leviathan um, uh, find was found off the coast of Haifa. Um, it's made Israel, it's dependent upon nobody. It is exporting now. And this is where this is, is, is I'll be taking you to. Uh, so Russia is there. I'll be coming back and talking about why I believe they're there. It says in verse 
5, it says Persia. A hundred years ago, Persia was called Persia, but today we call it Iran. More in Iran in just a bit. Um, Iran is hailing an alliance between Russia and Turkey. Now, just 10 years ago, if you were a Jew, you would take your vacation in Turkey. They were friends with Israel. But now they have a new dictator president whose name is Aragon. And he has called for the destruction of the state of Israel. He just signed a peace treaty with Russia. That's why they have that port on, in Tarsus, which is a part of Turkey. And what's making headlines within the last two weeks is Iran saying, yippee yahoo, that we are there on the, our same team. Let's talk about Turkey in verse 6, where it talks about Togarma. We had this up on a chart a couple weeks ago. Togarma is Turkey. Now, for years, we would have prophecy conference saying this cannot be fulfilled because Turkey wants to be a part of the EU and be friends with the West, and they were friends with Israel. All of that has changed just within the last couple of years. Only recently, an enemy of Israel calling for its destruction. Verse 8 says this will happen in the latter days. What's the real reason that Russia is in Israel? Um, 10 through 13. Thus says the Lord God, and that day will come to pass that a thought will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls, having neither bars nor gates. What? To take a plunder? The word there in the King James. Who has a King James Bible? Just raise your hand. What does the word say? Spoil. Spoil. Take off the first two letters. They've come to take the oil. In this case, the natural gas. And I'll explain that in a second. To stretch out your hand against the waste places that are once again inhabited and against the people gathered from the nations who had acquired livestock and goods who dwell in the midst of the land. Israel's, why are they there? Uh, They're not there really to support Iran or Turkey. That's not their interest. Um, Israel's discovery of the Leviathan natural gas, Israel has now agreed to supply the European community its future national gas needs. Israel, as I speak, is building the longest and deepest pipeline in the world known as the East Mediterranean Pipeline Project. It's going to be rooted from the gas fields outside of Haifa to Cyprus to Crete to Italy into Europe. It will supply the EU with 125 billion cubic meters of natural gas a year. Now why would Russia be interested in this? Because they have a monopoly from Russia supplying Europe with its natural gas. No competition, very little. And all of a sudden, within the last couple of years, Israel discovers one of the largest natural gas chambers. The contract is signed, gang. It's signed, sealed, and it is delivered. This is happening. It's not something that might happen or going to happen sometime in the future. It's happening as I speak right now. Russia's economy isn't good. They are totally dependent. They got mad at the Ukraine or one of those Croatian states in 2009. You know what they did? They turned off the gas. For 19 months, they turned off the gas. And they brought that country to its knees. They capitulated. They had to. And so this is, um, this is a hook in a jaw, something I believe Russia has to do because they simply cannot let this happen. I haven't even mentioned the oil discoveries on the Golan Heights. That's a whole other issue. Uh, it, it simply will mean that Russia has competition and it won't and doesn't like that competition. I'm in trouble, so we better go quick. Ezekiel 38 verse 5 says, Persia, Iran. Today, Iran is protesting because the USA has unleashed the toughest sanctions against Iran last month. Just last month this happened. Sanctions include oil exports, shipping, and certain banks. 
all part of the Iranian economy. Iranian's President Hussein Rouhani has asked and called for Israel's destruction. The reason for this action is because uh, new multi-tip missiles shipped to Lebanon to supply Hezbollah to attack Israel. Gang, this is just in the last couple weeks. More than 100 big international companies have withdrawn from Iran. Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei says, um, I will not allow these sanctions to take place. Now, some of you are old enough to remember on November 4th, 1979, when 52 American hostages were held for 444 days. How many of you old-timers remember that? Remember we um, Carter launched an attack, it crashed in the desert, and that didn't bother them at all until they found out that Ronald Reagan was going to become president. And the day before Ronald Reagan became president, they released all of them because they knew Ronald Reagan and Carter were two different people. Ooh, can I get sidetracked and get into politics here? (laughs) But some of you remember that. My point is this. Iran and Israel have been enemies ever since that event take place. Now I will close with this. When the fig tree, Israel, buds, and the Israel is back in the land, that generation will see it all happen. Mark's gospel tells us to what? The Old Testament tells us to watch what for. Now, if these things aren't happening in the world, just disregard everything I just said and have a nice day. But if you do your homework, be a Berean, I challenge you. Either these things are happening or they're not. And if they are, then look up. Your redemption draws nigh. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. As we seek to harmonize the Gospels of the Olivet Discourse. We thank you that, as your word tells us, that you call us friends and that you won't hide anything from us. And if we'll just be students of your word, that you'd open the word for us. You told us to watch, but you also told us what to watch for. And that you said in the last days the wise would understand, but the foolish would not. And so we give you the thanks during this busy time of year. Help us not get too sidetracked that we keep our eyes off the main goal of watching for you. In Jesus' name, amen.